Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. What's going on? Today is uh, 24 July, and this is episode 146. I think it's episode 146. Did pretty good on the last episode. Quite a few downloads. Appreciate that. And kind of pull the curtain back a little bit. I'm ordering a, a new microphone. Anyway, if you've been listening to the show a while, uh, maybe my audio, I don't know. It's okay. It could be better. So I decided to spend a little uh, cash and get me a new microphone. It should be here in a couple weeks, I guess. A week, I don't know. And uh, my podcast provider has a... Uh, like a mastering for your audio that you can pay a little extra per month. So I signed up for that uh, last episode. Anyway, I'm just trying to improve the audio, trying to improve the show where I can, just so you know. Uh, the first story, well, what do we got tonight? We got nine or 10 stories. I don't know. My note, I can't read my own notes. It looks like 10. And uh, quite a few from the Pacific. And uh, we're going to start off with the story I didn't get to last week. Uh, last episode, but I wanted to get to. So we'll start off with that one. This is from Breaking Defense. Lockheed Martin secures $221 million Army deal for high-powered air defense laser prototype. We're always down for a good, you know, high-energy laser story. This thing's called the Indirect Fire Protection Capability High-Energy Laser IFPC Hell, H-E-L. Not bad. It's all right. This is obviously one of the... Uh, Signature efforts for the Army for indirect fires. Um, in fact, it's called, it's under uh, air and missile defense, the CFT out of Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which, of course, is the fire center. It's from Ashley Roquet. It's from 20 July. Like I said, it's a few days old, but I didn't get to it last episode. I'll get to it now. So the U.S. Army selected at least one company, Lockheed Martin, to develop a new high-energy laser prototype to protect fixed and semi-fixed sites from incoming aerial threats, according to contract notification. On Wednesday, which is last Wednesday, I suppose, the service announced that Lockheed had received a deal worth up to $220.8 million to develop, integrate, manufacture, test, and deliver an indirect fire protection capability high-energy laser, also known as IFPC-HEL, prototype weapon system. Lockheed spokesman referred questions about the deal to the service, to the Army, but the company has been working on high-energy laser projects, including a 300-kilowatt laser under the Pentagon's High Energy Laser Scaling Initiative, also known as HELSI. Not bad. At the time of publication, a service spokeswoman has not responded to breaking defense questions about the program to include if other companies had been tapped to build competing prototype. It is also not clear what Lockheed Martin's deliverables include are what tests the weapon prototype will face. In March, the Army's Rapid Capabilities and Critical Technologies Office, also known as RICTO, asked industry to support to submit white papers for a 100-plus kilowatt laser. Uh, here's a quote from uh, 
I guess from that white paper, the IFPC hell is intended to protect fixed and semi-fixed sites from cruise missiles, rockets, artillery, mortars, unmanned aerial systems, rotary, and fixed-wing threats. Uh, continues, the effort will provide up to four complete high-energy laser weapon systems, which includes a high-energy laser, the beam control, the beam director, the battle management, the power, and the thermal management. It will be integrated on a government-furnished government property platform, maybe a truck or a trailer, doesn't say. Uh, the HAL weapon system will be delivered no later than 20 months after, afterwards. That's not a lot of time, 20 months, right? Uh, if successful, those high-energy laser weapon systems will then be used on live fire testing against operationally, operationally relevant targets, the Army wrote. The FY24 budget request documents also note that the service wants to transition the IFPC HAL work along with other efforts to design a future IFPC high-powered microwave from its RICTO over to a new team in 2025. So real quick on that, RICTO, uh, Army Rapid Capabilities and Critical Technologies Office, RICTO, they're up at, uh, where are they? Redstone Arsenal in Alabama. And uh, I don't know who they answer to. I think they're a direct report unit. I think they report like to Doug Bush, uh, you know, the senior acquisition. They do a lot of stuff, uh, heavy duty stuff for the Army. Um, and once they kind of test and they prototype stuff, and when they're ready, they turn it over to a PEO. And then the PEO will manage it. And then Ricto will move on to something else. So I think that's what that sentence means. Where is it at? Descendants means, you know, once they, it'll go from Ricto to a new team in 2025, which is like a year and a half away. And it'll probably be, I, I did some thinking on that. Who would it be? It would probably be PEO Missiles in Space. I'm guessing. I don't know. I assume that's where it would go. And where's PEO Missiles in Space? I think they're located at Redstone Arsenal also. A lot of heavy stuff goes on at Redstone. Uh, moving on. The IFPC Inc. 2 product office will establish initial IFPC direct energy team to coordinate the transfer of responsibility as well as determine the IFPC Inc. 2 product office requirements for these products starting in FY23, the Army explained. Again, that's that transition from RICTO to someone, probably to a PEO, probably missiles in space, I guess. Uh, current planning assumes the products will require additional development integration with Army Integrated Air and Missile Defense Architecture and Testing. What a good, that's a really nice article by Ashley Roque. No surprise there. What's next? Okay, there's a really good uh, Marine Corps story. I just found it right today. Uh, in fact, this is unplanned. Let me find it. I should have had it keyed up already, right? Here it is. Uh, this is from Defense Post from Ender Bish. Nice article here. U.S. Marines test fire ground launch ship killing missile. We just did a, a Marine Corps story on the Mattis system. And now we're doing, this is one of those uh, General Berger uh, Force Design 2030 deals where they put these sh uh, ground launch ship killing missiles on, of all things, a JLTV. They call it a rogue, I think. And the JLTV is autonomous. Uh, the fire controls, we'll get to that in a minute. But kind of unbelievable what they can use a JLTV for. Uh, so here's the story. U.S. Marine Corps live fire tested Navy Marine Corps Expeditionary Ship Interdiction System, also known as Nemesis. Remember that, Nemesis, last month. Uh, U.S. Marines with the 1st Division, 1st Marine Division, test fired the anti-ship missile system at Naval Air Station Point Mugu, California, 
27 June to 29 June. The test marked Raytheon Systems' third live fire test following two previous test launches in November of 20 and August of 21. The missile is a crucial piece of the Force Design 2030 modernization effort, which calls for restructuring the service's combat power for future near-peer conflicts in the Western Pacific. The Joint Light Tactical Vehicle Mounted Medium Missile System provides greater flexibility and survivability to the Marine Littoral Regiment. Remember, those are those new deals. Uh, this is a good part here. The USMC plans to field 14 Nemesis batteries, three for the littoral regiments and 11 for continental regiments. Each battery consists of 18 launchers, according to Naval News. The 3rd Marine, Marine littoral Regiment is tipped to receive the first battery in the fourth quarter of 23. We're in fourth quarter now, I think. Wait a minute, are we? July, August, September. Yep, we're in fourth quarter now, according to the outlet. So 3rd Marine Littoral Regiment will be the first one to get them. The service plans to declare IOC of the system in 2025 once four batteries have been fielded. FOC is expected in 2030 after fielding all 14 batteries. Remember we talked about IOC and FUE and all that stuff. FUE is first unit equipped. IOC is inner initial operation capability. Initial operation capability is always tied to a unit being equipped. And in this case, according to the article, uh, IOC is not one battery, like you might think. IOC to the Marines is four batteries. So even though you got first unit equipped of one battery, you're not at IOC. You got to get three more batteries. That's just, I thought that was interesting. Uh, FOC is in 2030, which is really not that bad, seven years away. Uh, a little bit about the Raytheon Consberg missile can strike at targets at a range of 100 nautical miles or 115 regular miles or 185K and has a stealth feature for reduced signature. A little more, uh, the Navy Marine Expeditionary Ship Interdiction System, Nemesis, is an anti-ship missile system developed for the Marine Corps to support land-to-sea attacks formed by U.S. Navy and Marine Corps. Uh, the Nemesis uses the latest Navy... The Nemesis features the U.S. Navy's latest anti-ship missile, the Naval Strike Missile. It's mounted atop of an unmanned variant of a joint light tactical vehicle. To me, that's very interesting. The ground vehicle platform known as the Remotely Operated Ground Unit for Expeditionary Fires is called a Rogue. Not bad. It's supplied by Oshkosh Defense. And, of course, we know, after if you follow the show, JLTV is going to be, be made by AIM General soon. Uh, while the Naval Strike Missile is joint manufactured by Raytheon and a Norwegian company, Cosberg Defense and Aerospace. <clears throat> uh, Marine Corps Systems Command acquires Nemesis to meet ground-based anti-ship requirements of the Marine Corps. The Rogue Fires, they're talking about the vehicle now, is an unmanned ground vehicle variant of the Oshkosh JLTV. The vehicle is remotely operated using a teller operator or leader to follow modes. It was specifically built by the Marine Corps to, short, to support anti-ship operations from the ground. Based on the JLTV chassis, the vehicle lacks a crew cab or crew body. It is integrated with sensors and cameras with a launcher mounted on top. Uh, let's see what else. A little bit about the Naval Strike Missile. It's a multi-mission cruise missile that can uh, neutralize highly secure maritime and land targets. It's versatile and lethal weapon delivering heavy naval power. We talked about the range. Let's see. The, the missile can escape enemy radars by performing maneuvers and flying close to sea level. 
It carries a 226.79 kg warhead. A little bit about the fire control system. It is not autonomous. Uh, the vehicle is autonomous, but the fire control system is not. The system is operated by a Marine who is responsible for mission planning and firing of the missile. Okay, that's in the story there. So that's a really good story. Now we'll get to some of the other stuff here. Here's an, uh, another story from Defense Post from the staff. This is from 23 July. North Korea fires several cruise missiles into the sea. Now this is kind of a latest update. We've been following this last two or three episodes. Uh, so this is as of yesterday. So North Korea fired several cruise missiles in the Yellow Sea between China and the Korean Peninsula on Saturday. Day before yesterday, South Korea Joint Chiefs of Staff said, Pyongyang's latest provocation comes as concern grows over the whereabouts and well-being of a U.S. soldier who made an unauthorized dash in the North Korean territory. So far, the reclusive regime has been tight-lipped on the incident. Saturday's launches are the latest in a series by Pyongyang, and it comes as Seoul and Washington ramp up defense cooperation, and the relations between the two Koreas is nearing an all-time low. The cruise missile launch took place around 4 a.m. on Saturday, Seoul time. North Korea had fired two ballistic missiles in the opposite coast toward Japan just three days earlier. We talked about that. The diplomacy between Pyongyang and Seoul has stalled, and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has called for ramping up weapons development, including tactical nukes. In response, Seoul and Washington have staged joint military exercises with advanced stealth jets and U.S. strategic assets, while an American nuclear-armed submarine made a South Korean port call for the first time in decades. On his visit to the submarine on Wednesday, which was last Wednesday, South Korean President warned Pyongyang it would face end of regime if it attacked the South with nuclear weapons. On Thursday, North Korean Defense Minister said the Ohio-class submarine deployment might have fallen under the conditions of the use of nuclear weapons specified in North Korean law on nuclear force policy. Last year, North Korea adopted a sweeping nuclear law setting out an array of scenarios at which it would use nukes, including preemptive strikes, if threatened, which is not good news. That's probably enough of that. I'm done with that one. All right, so now we're going back to that exercise in uh, in Australia, the big one, uh, Talisman Sabre 23. And I guess, I don't know, in response. So here's an article from Defense Post from today. Japan and South Korea fire missiles in Australia for the first time. Uh, Mike Yee, Defense News. Japan and South Korea conducted missile and rocket launches on Australian soil over the weekend for the first time during a multinational mission military exercise also involving the United States. Of course, we're talking about Talisman Sabre. Japan fired a Type 03 medium-range surface-to-air missile during a demonstration at Shoalwater Bay Training Area, while South Korea launched rockets from the K-239 Chunmu rocket artillery system at the same event. This is not the article, personal note. I've been to Showwater Bay years ago. And what I remember about Showwater Bay, besides the kangaroos, was uh, uh, giant spider webs everywhere and spiders, giant spiders uh, all over the place. That's just a personal story, probably not re not related to the actual story. Moving on. The Japan, South, the Japan Ground Self-Defense Force also fired inert Type 12 
truck launch anti-ship missile from Beechcroft Weapons Range near Jervis Bay, south of Sydney, in a separate event on Friday. So Japan fired an inert Type 12 truck launch anti-ship missile. Okay. I guess a similar thing that we just talked about with the Marine Corps. Uh, Australian Army Brigadier, Brigadier General Hill, who directed the Talisman Saber exercise, said the dr- drills serve as an opportunity to train alongside allies and regional partners. He also said this is Japan's largest ever participation in exercise Talisman Saber. Japan's contingent at the exercise includes more than 1,500 personnel and three ships. Uh, one of them is a helicopter destroyer that was recently converted to operate fixed-wing jets. Although it is only carrying helicopters in this exercise, it's called the JS Inzumo. Other weapons involved in the firepower demonstration at Shoalwater Bay includes a Marine Corps M142 HIMARS, which we all know, Australian M777A2 155mm howitzer, towed, and South Korean K-9 Thunder tracked artillery systems. Speaking of which, artillery had just selected the K-9 to meet its self-propelled howitzer requirements with plans to acquire 45, plus the associated AS-10 ammunition carrier vehicles. And a little bit about the exercise before we're done. This week's exercise will see 30,000 personnel from 13 nations take part in a two-week biennial event, which runs until 4 August. According to Australian Defense Department, other participants include Fiji, France, France, Indonesia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Tonga, United Kingdom, Canada, and Germany, with Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand attending as observers. France, all the way down in Australia. Good story. Uh, while we're in Australia, we might as well hang out there for a little bit while longer. This is from Colin Clark, 24 July. Australia or Aussies tap Lockheed for 20 C-130s for Australian dollars, 9.8 billion. Uh, Australia continued to make good on its pledges to boost the country's strategic reach. will buy an additional eight C-130Js for its fleet, boosting the number to 20, according to Procurement Minister Pat Conroy. Here's a little quote from him. This investment of 9.8 billion Australian will almost double the fleet and represents a massive uplift in capability, in mobility and transport for the Royal Australian Air Force, uh, Conroy told reporters. Deliveries will begin in 2027 and the first 12 will arrive by 2030. 2027, first 12 will arrive by 2030. Here's another quote. Almost doubling the fleet gives us more capacity to, to deploy them on multiple operations at the same time. Uh, we've got the C- C-17s as well, the Globemasters. We've got smaller C-27J Spartans, but the Hercules are the right size to do a lot of jobs. They have great range. They can land in unprepared fields. So advice from defense was that there'd be great significant increase in capability by almost doubling the fleet. Australia's hopes to buy the C-130s aren't a total surprise, even if the details had not been officially released. In November, U.S. State Department notified Congress that it had approved a potential sale, although the notice covered 24 planes, not 20. Asked why the government only decided to go for 20, Conroy said the final decision came down to military needs. I think that's about it. Yep. Uh, One more quote when we're done. Uh, 20 is the right number based on advice, and these aircraft are a significant upgrade on the C-130s that are in service at the moment. 
They've got better electronic warfare, self-protection. They've got better performance, and they've got better airframes. So while it's got the same name, it's a better aircraft. And that's, again, from Mr. Conroy. Yep, Conroy. That's it. End of story. Uh, almost done. What are we doing on time? 20 minutes. Yeah, we're going to be 30 minutes. So, well, I got this other story from Australia. What's the date? 24 July. Today, uh, Asia Pacific Defense Reporter. It's a U.S. It's about a U.S. ship that's been uh, commissioned in Australia. So, the Independence variant littoral combat ship USS Canberra, not an Australian ship, a U.S. ship, USS Canberra littoral combat ship, LCS-30, was commissioned at the Royal Australian Navy Fleet Base in Sydney on 22 July, two days ago. During the ceremony, leaders and distinguished guests from the United States and Australia wished the crew of the Canberra fair winds and following seas as they brought the ship to life and began to commission its and began its commission service. Uh, of course, you have the Secretary of the Navy, Carlos del Toro, down there. Uh, let's see, he's got a little quote here. This is a truly special occasion for our fleet and nation to be here with you in Australia, one of our closest allies, to celebrate the commissioning of the Navy's newest warship that is destined to serve throughout the Indo-Pacific region. I am confident that wherever the USS Canberra is sailing and whatever challenges her crew may face, they are ready as reinforced by the warship's motto, Can Do. The Canberra, the Canberra departed its home port, Naval Base San Diego, for the first U.S. Navy ceremony commissioning in Australia on 13 June. It visited Samoa and the Pacific Island of Fiji prior to its arrival in Sydney. Uh, the Independence Variant Littoral Combat Ships USS Jackson, LCS-6, USS Manchester, LCS-14, USS Oakland, LCS-24, and USS Mobile, LCS-26, are also operating in the Indo-Pacific. Earlier in the week, sailors from the USS Canberra engaged in sporting events, shared meals, and exchanged ship tours with the crew of the HMAS Canberra. Nice. The crew also participated in a community relations event like beach cleanup with the Taronga Zoo. I didn't know this. Next part. Uh, crew members are, all, are also honored to visit their namesake city, Canberra, for a freedom of entry march on 23 July. The U.S. Navy has a strong tradition of developing relationships between a ship and their namesake community or family. Establishing these enduring ties at the beginning of Canberra service will strengthen bonds between the ship and the people of Canberra. This tradition dates to medieval times and is the highest accolade bestowed by a town or city upon a group as a reflection of trust and confidence held by the citizens. Uh, Canberra is the second U.S. Navy ship named for the Australia's capital. The first was a Baltimore-class heavy cruiser, was renamed from Pittsburgh to Canberra on 16 October 42 and was commissioned on 14 October 43. It was named in honor of Australian heavy cruiser HMAS Canberra, which was lost at the Battle of Savo Island in World War II. The ship was decommissioned on 2 February of 1970 and stricken from the Naval Register on 31 July 78. That sucker served from 43 to 70. How about that? A little bit about the independence variant of littoral combat ships. They are fast, optionally manned, mission-tailored service combatants that operate nearshore and open ocean environments. Uh, LCS integrate with joint combined manned and unmanned teams to provide a forward present maritime security and deterrence missions around the globe. What a great story. 
Asia Pacific reporter. No, I'm sorry, Asia Pacific defense reporter. Nice story. Uh, what's next? Iran. Three stories and we'll be done. 24 minutes. Wait a minute, I got a New Zealand story in here too somewhere, don't I? Uh, Let's see. Yeah, New Zealand. That's a long story though. I don't know if I got time for that. Yeah, I'll do it. Uh, so here we go. How New Zealand is trying to expand military relations with its Pacific neighbors. Uh, this is from Tim Fish on 24 June. We're, we're down in Australia. We might as well stay down there, right? In early June, Prime Minister, the Fijian Prime Minister, traveled to New Zealand where he was treated as an honored guest. Weeks later, New Zealand's Defense Prime Minister, Andrew Little, arrived in Fiji and they signed a status of forces agreement with Fiji for home affairs and immigration. The Fijian minister, I'm sorry. Uh, this kind of relationship may seem routine, but they re represent something new for New Zealand, part of a larger and more serious regional outreach from Wellington. Began in earnest in 2018 under former Prime Minister Arden, uh, who advocated a Pacific reset as a foreign defense priority. The outreach comes at a time when China is trying hard to sway Pacific Island leaders to their side. The funding for the, this Pacific reset total some New Zealand $714 million over four years. There were 10 new government positions established in eight Pacific Island locations, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, Vanuatu, PNG, Solomon Islands, Kiribati, and Honolulu, Hawaii, of course, and then four in Tokyo, four, four more, one in Tokyo, Beijing, Beijing, Brussels, and New York to coordinate development policy and partnerships for the Pacific region. And defense is very much part of that effort. Might as well do Beijing, right? Uh, a little bit about Fiji. Fiji represents something of a model for how Wellington increased its regional ties as it represents a dramatic turnaround in Fiji-New Zealand relationship. But Fiji is not alone. In April, New Zealand sent officials on a regional tour, the first since 2009 thanks to COVID protocols, led by the New Zealand Prime Minister and Associate foreign affairs minister it included visits to fiji solomon islands tonga and focus on climate change global inflation and heightened strategic competition uh, given its geography it's no surprise that new zealand's defense relations with its neighbors comes with a heavy maritime security focus new zealand secretary of defense uh, andrew bridgman visited the solomon islands in march to observe the development of a new maritime security strategy for the country. Bridgman told Breaking Defense that the New Zealand team consisted of two MOD Ministry of Defense officials and a maritime advisor. Uh, here's a quote. New Zealand recently wrote its own maritime security strategy, so it is a position to share lessons learned with the Pacific neighbors. Bridgman added that the MOD will also support Fiji with development of its maritime security strategy. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the, the MOD's mutual assistance program has been key in developing bilateral relations to support New Zealand's foreign policy goals. It aims to improve the effectiveness of Pacific Island, Pacific Island partner nations, facilitates exchanges between forces, and provides experience for New Zealand Defense Force units operating in a tropical climate. Some of these courses include leadership, professional development, and skills training. Uh, there are 10 technical advisors posted across the Pacific from New Zealand. 
Two is in Timor, Leste. One is in Papua New Guinea. Two are in Fiji. Two in the Cook Islands. One in Tonga. One in Vanuatu. And one in the Solomon Islands. Uh, of course, there's some tension in New Zealand for how it manages its specific identity, including with respect to issues such as opposition to militarization of the region and the ability to carry out its key missions. Uh, for example, uh, New Zealand Defense Force in the past has had serious retention issues and is struggling to provide key capabilities across the service. As early as the 2010 defense paper, there have been calls for New Zealand to have capacity to lead a crisis response or other conflict in the Pacific without Australian support. Uh, here's a quote from this white paper. There may be some circumstances in the future where we want New Zealand Defense Force to lead an operation in the South Pacific or operate without needing to rely on others. That's pretty good, right? I think we talked about that. Their military is not that big. Not that big at all. I think it's only like 15,000, the whole military. I think their army is like a brigade-sized element. It wouldn't take anything to modernize that small of a force. I mean, you can have you know, a pretty tough, mean little armed forces with a little bit of money. You know what I mean? If you wanted to. Anyway, what are we doing on time? 29 minutes? Uh, I got three quick stories. No, two. I'll do two quick stories. And these are... Uh, these are like drone stories. The first one is Iran unveils upgraded Shahid 149 Gaza drone. Uh, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, has unveiled the upgraded Shahid 149 Gaza drone. The upgrade to this high-altitude, long-endurance, hail drone includes a new hardpoint and improved landing gear. Uh, the upgraded Gaza drone flew on Sunday at the Martyr Karimi Air Base in Iran, obviously. The Shahid 149. Nine is manufactured by Iran, manu Iran Aircraft Manufacturing Industries, and it was unveiled in May of 21. It's a high-altitude, long-endurance, unmanned combat aircraft flying over 35 hours and can cover 7,000 K in a single mission. It uses it for ISR, of course, and while it's claimed not to have any combat capabilities, I'm sorry, while it's claimed to have combat capabilities, no details of Missiles it is armed with have been revealed. Of course, it's getting a new hardpoint, which could be an extra reconnaissance payload or even a missile. And then the last drone story is from, I saw this one on Twitter, like uh, Al Mayadeen English. Uh, that's the name of the author, I think. And the source is Al Monitor, 24 July. Why? And this is a question I've been asking myself, and maybe you've been asking it too if you listen to the program. Question is, why are Turkey's Baykar drones so popular? That's a good question. Uh, how often do we do stories on people buying the TB2 or whatever, right? We just did one. So here's a nice little story. It says, upon Turkish, um, I, I'm, before I go on with the story, there, Turkey's got a president, Erdogan. I know that's not how you say his name. I've heard it said differently, uh, like in re different reporting. But I can never remember how they say it. So I'm going to say Erdogan. So if you're smarter than me, which you probably are, and you know how to say his name, try not to laugh too hard when I butcher the president of Turkey's name. Uh, here we go. Upon Turkish President Erdogan's visit from uh, to Saudi Arabia on Tuesday, which would be last Tuesday, uh, the Istanbul-based defense firm Bey Baykar announced it would sell a 
number of Bayraktar and Akinsi high altitude long endurance drones of the kingdom. We, we talked about that. Erdogan landed on what he described as the country's largest defense deal. Uh, Baykar drones have been supposedly using conflict zones all over the world since Turkey started selling them in 2019, including Ukraine, Nagorno-Karabakh, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Ethiopia, and Somalia. Al Monitor explained in a report that the Turkish-made drones have been sold in 29 countries, while four are in negotiations and seven have publicly expressed interest in acquiring them. And that's from the Washington Institute of Near East Policy. On that note, the countries explored unmanned aerial vehicle agreements with several countries, including Saudi Arabia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. Among the countries in the Middle East that have purchased the Bayraktar TB2 drones are Kuwait, Qatar, uh, UAE, Algeria, Morocco, and Iraq. Uh, how about the Saudi Akinsi Agreement? Uh, this guy they keep quoting is from the Atlantic Council. His name is Rich Oatsen. He said the Saudi deal is extremely significant as Turkey's new Akinsi drone was fielded to Turkish forces just last year. Saudi Arabia will be the third country besides Turkey to use them. The Akinsi can strike distant targets with precision munitions, including targets designated by other drones. Uh, the Akinsi is twice as large as the TB2. Is equivalent, kind of equivalent to a Predator, and it could be used as surveillance, but it suggests it might be vulnerable to surface-to-air missiles. Now, here's the question that I should have uh, maybe led with, but anyway, don't want to give away the ending. So why are the Bayraktar drones so popular? And again, from this guy, Rich Oatsen, there are several reasons for the success and popularity of the Bayraktar drones. Uh, Turkey just doesn't deliver the aircraft with quick user course. Uh, they provide long-term training teams, maintenance, and supply support, plus operational integration with other systems, command and control, other sensors, manned and unground ground and air forces. Turkish forces have recent combat experience with the drones, so their concepts and integrating approach. Uh, so they have uh, relevancy and they have brand recognition. Additionally, Turkish drones are considered cheaper than U.S. and other Western-made drones and are superior to non-Western drones such as UAVs made in China and Iran. So there you go. Cheaper than U.S. and Western-made drones, but are better than non-Western drones from China and Iran. And they got, what's that word? Integration. And what is the integration? Long tra uh, training teams, maintenance, and supply. And integration into combat operations, right? We just talked about that. Was it that Dinarani said uh, supplying new equipment without integration is just given a kit and not capability? That's a that's a good example. So what why they're so popular is because Bayraktar gives capability. How do they give capability through training, maintenance, supply, operational integration? There you go. You can't just give somebody new equipment. You gotta you gotta integrate it properly. And there you go. Thirty five minutes. That's a pretty good episode right there. Um, I got one more story, but I think I'll save it for the next episode. All right. 35 minutes, episode 146, I think. Yep, 146 is in the books. Thank you very much for listening, and good night.